This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Dan Morrison from the University of Alabama in Huntsville. Today, we talk with JT Thomas, an associate professor of sociology at the University of Mississippi. JT is author of five books and also has appeared previously on the Annex. We are here to talk about JT's newest book, just out from the University of Georgia Press, The Souls of Jewish Folks, W.E.B. Du Bois, Anti-Semitism, and The Color Line. As I said previously, JT was on the Annex to discuss his book, Diversity Regimes, Why Talk is Not Enough to Fix Racial Inequality at Universities. Welcome back, JT. Always good to see you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Dan. Awesome. Well, we are talking here on October 16th of 2023. There is a lot going on in the world. Maybe we'll have a chance at the towards the end of our time to discuss some of the recent events in world and U.S. history. But I want to jump in and talk about your book. So your book's title, of course, calls to mind Du Bois's famous book of essays, The Souls of Black Folk, and his identification of the veil of racism, and with it, double consciousness. For those who may be unfamiliar, can you give us some background on Du Bois and the essay that outlined the veil and double consciousness? Yeah, sure. So, you know, in my mind, W.E.B. Du Bois is among the greatest intellectual figures of the 20th century. Souls of Black Folk was really what Du Bois himself described as this rogue collection of essays. He did not have much of a sense that it was, some, you know, something that was going to be as widely successful as it was. He didn't think much of it when an, uh, an editor for a press approached him about compiling these essays. The first essay in Souls of Black Folk is titled uh, Of Our Spiritual Strivings. The essay in Souls of Black Folk actually was first published in 1897 for the Atlantic Magazine, and it was entitled Strivings of the Negro People. And then it gets reprinted in Souls of Black Folk in 1903. And in that opening essay, Du Bois has this very famous and oft-quoted passage where he talks about what it means to be Black in America at the, at the turn of the 20th century. And so, you know, he writes that, you know, to be Black uh, in this American world is to be in a world that yields him no true self-consciousness, only lets him see himself through the revelation of the other world. Then he says, it is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity, right? So Du Bois is really describing double consciousness at the time as a condition that all Black Americans have to wrestle with by virtue of the fact that they are Black and living in America. So double consciousness is the result of living in a nation where citizenship and belonging are so tightly tethered to whiteness that to be Black is to be incompatible with the nation states. When Du Bois writes at the end of that passage, or the end that, you know, one ever feels his two-ness, he's describing these two, what he calls unreconciled strivings that all Black people in the United States have to grapple with in order to get by in a country that will not afford them the same recognition as their white counterparts. So the veil is this dividing line, the racial color line, and, right. then and then double consciousness is the sense of two-ness being both Black and American in a context in which you can't really be American if you're Black. That's right. But importantly, too, right, there's one way to read that passage and come away with the idea that double consciousness is, de is a debilitating condition. And I don't think Du Bois intended it to be read that way. He calls it a gift of second sight, right? It is this unique perspective that comes from being on the side of the veil and being able to watch the, you know, kind of look at the white world and see how they move and, and how they construct blackness and how they construct whiteness. It is perspective. If it's anything, it's perspective. Right. That famous line about uh, being both black and an American at the same time and wanting to be fully recognized as both black and American. 
by the dominant right. White, white society. That's right. Well, JT, you're already pointing towards some themes that I know are going to unpack. And certainly, you know, you mentioned how for Du Bois, double consciousness is an effect of the veil. It's not debilitating. In some ways, it's a superpower, sort of epistemologically. Right. But at the same time, you start the book with an examination of the concept of double consciousness, where it came from, how it developed. So I want you to say something here about how double consciousness came to be closely identified with Jewish people. Yeah. So this was one of the more fascinating things I learned when I was kind of doing the research for this book. That term double consciousness is not Du Bois's own. The, the term itself predates Du Bois by about 80 years. And its origins are really in mental health. So the term, you know, the first documented use of it is around 1817. It's used by this physician who's treating this woman. He describes as prevent as presenting two versions of herself that were fractured from one another to such an extent that neither of those two versions were aware of the other. So she would slip into one state of consciousness and that state of consciousness is unaware of the other one that she would then slip into at a later stage. By the mid-19th century, double consciousness becomes a named pathology that has firm roots in the popular imagination, right? The term shows up in Harper's Magazine. It shows up in Cornhill Magazine, which was a very popular British publication. And then by the late 19th century, the term double consciousness, you sometimes see it in medical journals substituted for dual consciousness, and it's associated with certain symptoms like emotional disturbances and hysteria. And there are some medical practitioners at the time that are suggesting that double consciousness is the result of inheritable traits, which was also very common for other psychoses in the, in the mid to late 19th century. Many of, of what we think of as mental illnesses in that period were seen as inheritable traits, conditions of racially inferior groups and or women. So all of the symptomatic expressions or almost all of them that are associated with these descriptions of double consciousness in the late 19th century, those were also symptoms that were disproportionately ascribed to European Jews. And, and that's, of course, to be expected, right? Degenerative mental illnesses of that time were commonly ascribed to European Jews. So Jewish women, for example, were believed to be neurotic and Jews on the whole were believed to be more susceptible to insanity. Some attributed these illnesses to stereotypical behaviors. Like there's one line of thought in this period that says that the reason that Jews are subject to all of these different kinds of mental illnesses, including double consciousness, is because they're obsessed with being rich and money and that drives them and compulses them. But others, though, in a weird way, kind of foreshadow Du Bois in that they view those illnesses as rooted in Jews' inability to assimilate into European nation states. Now, their argument is that Jews can't assimilate because they're Jewish and they're culturally inferior or biologically inferior. And Du Bois's reformulation is to look at the role of the nation state and its construction of itself as preventing groups like Jews and Blacks from assimilating into the nation state on account of their group membership. They are incompatible with the nation state because the nation state always defines itself against those groups. I mean, what you're saying really brings to mind a lot of the scholarship on, you know, scientific racism, 
but the sort of the unique cultural components as if certain cultural aspects are carried along in genetic material and population groups over time. Very interesting. Yeah. And, and a lot of that, a good chunk of that work in that particular chapter in Souls of Jewish Folk is really coming out of the work I did with Sander Gilman in the, the book, Our Race is Crazy, where we're kind of looking at how race itself in the late 19th century was seen as sort of a precursor for all kinds of mental and physical illnesses. And double consciousness emerges out of that particular context. Text. Right. Okay. Du Bois grows up in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. He's sent to Fisk University in Nashville. Of course, he wanted to go to Harvard, ends up going to Harvard for graduate school, graduates first a uh, Black American to receive a PhD at Harvard. Then he wins a fellowship to go to Germany. Germany being the country that is understood as the height of uh, scientific and intellectual achievement. So he arrives in 1892, is there for a couple of years, studies in Berlin. And I didn't really know much as much about this before reading your book, but he's a Germanophile. So can you tell us about how Du Bois is received in Germany? What do we know about what he experienced with regard to the veil and double consciousness? You know, both for himself as a Black American and in his observations regarding the status of German Jews. Yeah. So, and let me paint this scene too, right? Like he's coming into, he's coming into Germany as Germany is on the cusp of this major, of major social, political, and economic reforms and transitions. And he's coming into the university of, well, it's now the University of Berlin in Germany, which is one of the premier academic institutions in the world. By his own account, Du Bois has a really great time living and learning in Germany, right? German institutions as a whole were considered the finest in the world. And many of Du Bois's mentors that he had at Harvard had trained in these German institutions. So William James and Albert Hart, uh, who mentored him at Harvard, also professors that he had at Harvard, like George Santayana and, and Josiah Royce, for Du Bois then to kind of go and study in Berlin for him, and I think probably for many other aspiring academics at that time, this was a real badge of honor. On the whole, when you look at his writings, both his, his published works, as well as his letters and his notes and his diary entries, his reflections on Berlin are pretty positive. He really loved his seminars. He spoke fondly of Heinrich von Treitsky, for example, who folks who don't know this name, uh, this was a real firebrand of a professor. He was also a leading figure among Germany's growing nationalist movement at the time. And this movement was deeply, deeply anti-Semitic. And, and so was von Treitsky. And so in his letters and notes and writings, Du Bois doesn't really deal much with what, if any kind of prejudice he himself faced as a Black academic in Berlin. He does note one outburst in, a, in the classroom by von Treitsky, where von Treitsky standing in front of this very large lecture hall of students and kind of loudly declares, mulattoes are inferior, they feel themselves inferior. But Du Bois doesn't say much else about it other than noting there was an outburst. So you're kind of left to infer what he might have thought about it. What he does say, though, is that on the whole, in Germany, he felt more free than he did at home. Berlin and Germany were, in his words, he calls them a momentary escape from my own social problems. So what I think he seemed to appreciate most about his time in, in Berlin and Germany was this kind of 
critical distance that he had from the veil, from the color line that was not possible for him in America as a black man. It's later in Dusk of Dawn, the autobiography of a race concept that comes out in the 1940s. It's there where he's reflecting on this. And he says that in Germany is where he began to understand the race problem as a global one and that he was able to let go of what he, what he called the provincial understanding of race and racism. I think a big part of why he was able to do that was in part, he had so much direct exposure in Berlin to anti-Semitism. And Du Bois, while he doesn't talk very much, if at all, about any anti-Blackness that he faced while in Germany, he talks an awful lot about anti-Semitism relatively, right? And and what I argue in the book is that it's this exposure to anti-Semitism that really helps Du Bois think through the parallels as well as the differences of being Jewish in Germany with being Black in America. You're right. It's the it's one of the central claims, not the central claim uh, of of the book. You know, I think as you note in the book, there's you don't use this language, but you know, there's no smoking gun where Du Bois says, and I, Du Bois, went to Germany and there I saw the plight of Germany's Jews, how they were excluded exactly as myself and other Black Americans, you know, back in the United States. And I'm going to organize my the rest of my writing around this. I mean, that would have been a great find at UMass. So folks at the UMass Du Bois Center. It would have been a very yeah. short book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, if you find a document like that, uh, let let JT know first. But that critical distance that you're talking about, there are many other, I just called to mind other Black intellectuals and artists and creators who decamped, you know, to to Europe at, le- at least once, if not multiple times to gain that sense of critical distance. That's right. Okay, well, all of this leads to also one of the really central concepts of the book that really helps us think through this association between Du Bois's experience in Germany and his writings uh, about the color line and double consciousness. And you write quite a bit about racialized nationalism, which you define as the process by which the race concept becomes a necessary ingredient in the active formation of nationhood, where racial ideology and racial purity are wedded to nationalist discourse and movements. And you suggest that both Jews and Black Americans experience the duality that comes with efforts to belong both and to remain a distinct community. So can you talk more and how does Du Bois' time in Germany really help him understand racialized nationalism with regards to Jews in Germany and Black folks in his homeland? Yeah, so I, I mentioned earlier that when Du Bois arrives in Germany, it's at, it's at this really important moment in that nation's development. So there's this really huge mass movement among Germans from the rural countryside to urban centers like Berlin and others. That also includes the movement of many German Jews who were primarily rural based. They're moving into cities like Berlin and other large cities. They're also increasingly moving into institutions of higher education. By the late 19th, early 20th century, Jews, even though they're a very, very small percentage of the German population, they do begin to dominate the professions. And in order to get into those professions, they have to have a higher education. But there's also rampant anti-Semitism during this period. So Jews are on a near daily basis, they're denounced as a menace to German society. And this is coming not only from, um, you know, elected officials and aspiring elected officials, it's also coming from the professoriate. I mentioned Heinrich von Treitsky. He's among those who also serves in public office while he's a professor, and he's 
writing and speaking extensively about what he considers the Jewish problem in Germany. At the time that Du Bois is in Germany, there are also accusations of blood libel that are circulating. And even at the University of Berlin, there's a very strong current of anti-Semitism among both the German faculty as well as its student body. And Du Bois is observant. If we know anything about Du Bois, it is that he is observant. And even as a student there, he writes this seminar paper on the kind of contemporary political developments in Germany and the figure of the Jew within those political developments. And in this paper, Du Bois writes, he's really clear that that German nationalism presents a kind of a double problem, that when you compare it to his theorizing of the double problem of American nationalism, it's quite similar, right? And the double problem is this. On the one hand, this emergent German nationalism wants to see a strong and unified Germany. And so it enables Jews to function in German society so that German society can be strong. On the other hand, anti-Semitism is baked into this German nationalism, and it prevents Jews from attaining the status of real Germans. So it's the Jews' success in spite of all this anti-Semitism that, it, that Du Bois sees as the real source and strength of in his terms, their collective souls. He doesn't say collective souls. He uses that term to describe Black folk in America, but the term itself is parallel. So in Du Bois's terms, it's the Jews' success in spite of anti-Semitism that the real source and strength of their collective efforts, but that success is also the source and strength of this brand of German nationalism that defines itself against Jews. So for Du Bois, the idea of two warring souls that he describes within Black America, they represent incompatible forms of national consciousness, right? There's Blackness and there's Americanness. And Blacks are striving for full recognition as political subjects, and they can never obtain complete recognition because America also defines itself against all that is Black. So the way that I think about that is Du Bois really understood the duality of both Jews and Black Americans as rooted in their efforts to belong to this body politic that doesn't want them while also striving to retain their own collective consciousness or recognition of their collective identity and its importance to them. Isn't it really paradoxical that the formation of this unified German liberal state, so to speak, is based on exclusion, not inclusion? Yeah. And I think when you look at national development, that's probably more the rule than the exception. As a nation state expands, there's this kind of inverse relationship that territorial expansion has to how many people think about national identity and citizenship. So as territory grows, or as not even physical territory, right, but even just the sense of national importance grows, the need to clarify whose territory and who's important to the nation state, well, that becomes even more central to articulating. And so in the United States, just like in Germany, as the development of the nation state unfolds, you see a tightening of the belt within whiteness, so to speak, right? A need to keep it confined and restricted to something only certain groups can have and to make clear which groups certainly cannot have it. I'm thinking about the relationship between this and, and empire, right? And Germany is developing as a unified nation, the United States is expanding, adding Montana, Idaho, Washington in the late 1800s. 
Of course, the United States and our nation's colonial ambitions didn't stop with the Pacific Ocean. But then you see how, as you were saying, the territory and also sort of national identity develops. It's exclusively for you know white Christian men who are entitled to this full set of role freedom. That's correct. All right. Well, we talked earlier about how double consciousness is framed as a debilitating condition in some ways. And, and I think you're you're right to say Du Bois didn't, didn't understand it that way. And he reformulates double consciousness to indicate how harmful the veil has actually been for whites because it has artificially toughed them up and made them blind to their ordinariness. And also at the same time, as we were saying earlier, you know, the veil gives an epistemological advantage, uh, more access to truth about white people from the perspective of Black Americans. Not only about white people, but also about the world. It was sort of what the world looks like from a position of dispossession and disinheritance and, and oppression. Of course, this reminds me of the James Baldwin quote from Letter from a region from of my mind where he suggests that for black americans so he writes the tendency has really been insofar as this was possible to dismiss white people as the slightly mad victims of their own brainwashing can you tell us more about this chapter where you talk about this reformulization of double consciousness from a mental condition carried along genetically and culturally among jews and other you know uh, disfavored populations to a sense of double consciousness as actually being harmful to the white Americans who perpetuate and sustain the color line. Yeah, there's this example I use in the book um, from when Du Bois is back at Fisk University in 1938 to give the commencement speech. Remember, Fisk is where he did his undergrad, and this is a big honor for him. And the speech he gives is really ranging. Broadly, it's about the importance of higher education for developing Black intellectual life. But there's one part of the speech in particular where Du Bois asks this very captive audience to consider how the veil, to consider how the color line negatively affects white folks. And so he says that to think about what whiteness is or to think about what it means to be white, white people, he says, have no norms that were not set in the previous century. They cannot imagine any world in which they don't dominate it and in which that world is not infused with their own ideals and their methods of government and economic organization, their literature, their art, and also their forms of exploitation and hate. And as a result, Du Bois says, the color line's effect on white Americans has really been disastrous. He says the very system that affords white people what he calls in Black Reconstruction, which comes out three years prior to this, right, in 1935. And in Black Reconstruction, he uses this term wages of whiteness, right? The public and psychological wages conferred to white folks on account of being white, right? They're in their compensatory wages. And he says that these wages of whiteness also creates among white folks a kind of irreconcilable condition that as long as racism exists and confers them these advantages, democracy cannot exist. And if the color line if what it does for Black folks is prevent them from fully participating in this American democratic project, well, for white folks, it fully strips them of their ability to recognize that as a fact. And this is very similar. It always reminds me of Jenny Mueller's really, really good and recent work on racial ignorance, which is also drawing on, you know, the kind of Charles Mills ideas of an epistemology of ignorance, that white folks are ignorant of the ability to see Black folks as a in their full human condition. And then later in Du Bois's autobiography, he writes that similarly, the effect of the veil is that the doer is never able to see the deed and that white folks are in effect blind to the very system that gives their advantages 
in life, right? So he says, and this is why I say, you know, you can't read double consciousness as a debilitating condition. He says, transcendence is only possible through second sight. Well, who has second sight? Black folks in America have second sight. It's a gift which only the victims of white supremacy possess. Well, for those who didn't listen to the interview that I did with Jenny Mueller a while back, it's on the Annex feed and it's on the Annex website. So uh, after folks are done listening to this, they will uh, go on over to their favorite search engine and uh, look up the annex and uh, find that interview, which was a delight to do. And and uh, Jenny Mueller is a great scholar uh, up in New York at, at Skidmore and has done a lot of great work on um, her theory of racial ignorance. I definitely think we're getting a little bit closer to some of our contemporary issues in the United States today questions of who is really included in our politics, whose views matter, whose votes matter, how are we going to ensure or for some people limit access to voting rights and equal participation in society. Before we go there, I want to talk about how Du Bois has been received and understood mostly among sociologists and others too, specifically around the ideas of the veil and double consciousness and some of the things he talks about in that first essay, The Souls of Black Folk. I think you address this pretty straightforwardly in your book. So some scholars suggest that Du Bois largely abandoned writing about double consciousness and the veil as he moved throughout his career, as if he had somewhat of a phenomenological phase or I don't know, perhaps even like an interactionist phase in his thinking. And then he moved later to a more social structural and and global perspective in his in his thoughts. So how does your research challenge that narrative and link these different parts of Du Bois's career around the veil and double consciousness? Let me start too by kind of putting Du Bois himself in context, right? Du Bois, Du Bois's scholarly career is longer than many people's lifetimes. You know, I think Henry Louis Gates is the one who estimated it and said, if you look at all of his publications from roughly, you know, the the mid 1890s through his death in, in 1963, everything he wrote, books, plays, op-eds and editorials and short essays, all told, you're talking about a publication roughly once every 12 days for 60 plus years. It's just an enormous volume of scholarship. And like any good intellectual, he develops his line of thought over time. That said, so it is true, he hardly ever uses the term double consciousness explicitly in any of his other major works. But the concepts behind it or the underlying ideas behind those concepts of double consciousness and the veil, this idea that there's a racialized social system that affords Black people a unique perspective, that's something that comes up in his work quite often. And I try to show that in the book. It shows up in his speeches. It shows up in some of his other popular writings over the decades. The, the concept of the veil, Jose Itzigon and, and Carita Brown, when they write about Du Bois, they talk about how the veil is really Du Bois' account for how both white and Black Americans see and experience the world, right? So white people project their own construction of Black people onto the veil, kind of like how one would look through a one-way mirror. So those on kind of the dominant side of the veil see their projections of non-whites reflected on it. And then those projections become realities that non-white people have to process in their own self-formation. The veil prohibits white people from recognizing the humanity of Black folks and instead projects upon Black people this kind of less than condition. But they also, Jose Itzigon and Carita Brown also say that as this projection gradually penetrates the minds of those on Du Bois's side of the veil, it produces a kind of agency. 
within that system. That's that gift of second sight that allows them to understand and acknowledge the veil and also the false construction of Black subjectivity. Okay, so that's the veil. And we think about how this also shows up in some of Du Bois's other writings. We see how he addresses the agency of Black people a lot across his scholarship. We see how he addresses their many efforts to free themselves and the world around them from the shackles of white supremacy. I mean, he talks about a general strike in Black Reconstruction. What is that if not a recognition of Black folks that they have agency and that they are able to free themselves? They do not rely on a white world to come and save them. We see time and again, he writes of how Black people challenge these hegemonic narratives of Black inferiority and also shape new narratives of Black accomplishment. So I like to think about his thinking in those terms, even if he's not using a specific concept itself, that idea develops tremendously over time in his work. I think it's a great example of just saying periodization is often a dangerous uh, activity to be gauged in with a great deal of humility and circumspection. And and you're right. I mean, Du Bois's work is just, I mean, you can't, you, you can't deal with it all. The volume of items is just, uh, and the breadth of them is just uh, incredibly, incredibly rich. Yeah. I mean, if, if I think of like, think about all the events that he lived through that would have helped to shape his thinking. He, he lives through the rise and fall of Reconstruction. He lives through the high tide of lynching. He lives through both world wars. He lives through a red scare of which he was a target. And then he dies on the eve of the March on Washington. If we think about how people in their ideas are always situated in the social context in which they live, I mean, just the amount of material he would have had to work with and think through, of course, his ideas are going to develop and stretch and go in all kinds of imaginative places because of all of the things that he's experiencing and seeing around him. The guy gives me hope, although he's obviously just a towering figure and one that I would say we as sociologists have yet to really grapple with the writings in the last third I mean, there's, right. there of his life. There are some things that are coming, coming on. There's a new book about Du Bois's international thought that I just picked up. There's the new Chad Williams book on Du Bois in the first world war, uh, yeah. which is obviously earlier in his, in his life than the last third, but still a scholar that keeps on giving in a, in a lot of, in a lot of ways. That's right. He's not the only one. That's right. Well, as I read the book, I often thought of the term anti-blackness and how both the American Empire and Germany, which was also building towards empire, used this principle of exclusion to build their imagined pure Volk that offered full citizenship to white men while rejecting blacks and Jews specifically. So how do you think about the term anti-blackness and with relation to your your cases? One thing I hope readers of the book will take away from the work is the idea that, you know, anti-Blackness and anti-Semitism are in some ways distinct racial projects. But one thing I hope they take away is that those racial projects have a common genealogy and the convergences of those projects, in my mind, are in some ways more important than the points of departure. If we think about the last two centuries, for much of those last two centuries, both Jews and Black folks have served as kind of the the central mechanisms or the central vehicles through which science and social policy are trying to advance the interests of white supremacy. So if we're looking at the roots of Du Bois's thinking on the race concept within the context of late 19th century, and we hold that next to the routes that that thinking takes as he examines the Black experience in America, I think doing that can help us reveal some of those points of convergence between two things 
that I think many people take for granted as unrelated phenomenon. So I hope the comparative aspect of this work is useful for readers, that we don't need to put these things in separate buckets. We don't need to put anti-Semitism over here and anti-Blackness over here. In many ways, they can they can be viewed as, as mutually unfolding phenomena. I mean, I think one of the stereotypes about movements is that anti-Black racism and anti-Semitism are different things. They are different things, but they that they're not related at all. And actually that there is conflict and tension between those two communities within the United States, certainly around the idea of who is included in the American body politic. And, and sometimes of certain Jewish American, Jewish folks in the United States are, are held up as exemplars for Black Americans, as if here's a group that started from the bottom and now they're at high reaches in industry and, and and sort of politics and other other kinds of pursuits. But your book is an intervention into that, pitting these groups against against each other and, and maybe a call to see some parallels and build a kind of central solidarity. Uh, yeah, I hope so. And I hope also, you know, it, it may not come across as clear in the book, but it's certainly clear in other works. I'm thinking of Michael Twitty and some of his writings that anti-Blackness and anti-Semitism are definitely not mutually exclusive for Black Jews, right, who experience both of these things. And there are Black Jews. There are many Black Jews. And, and they're often, um, I think, as a function of white supremacy, they're written out of expressions and ideas around Jewishness um, on account of being Black. An excellent point to remember the intersections of these of these categories for sure. Uh, well, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but I think the fourth chapter of your book and the conclusion brought me to thinking about the present day where we see a resurgence of explicitly anti-Semitic rhetoric on the political right, along with anti-Black racism. We're recording this interview uh, in a historical moment where there is conflict uh, between Palestinians and the Israeli state. And we can talk about that a bit later. But what do you think scholars inspired by Du Bois might do to address these twin evils of anti-Black racism and anti-Semitism in their teaching and writing in public lives? I think you've had some experience with this, JT. Yeah, a little bit. I think we have to move with some urgency. And I think we have to take risks. And these are two things that are probably contrary to how most people in the academy operate. We do not, for the most part, move with much urgency. And many, many of us are risk averse. But this is, in my mind, just not a time for us to sit back and observe, which is, I think, for, you know, uh, the, the kind of traditional social scientist, that is the choice mode of, of operating. We just can't pretend like we have that luxury anymore. The same movements that traffic in anti-Blackness and anti-Semitism, they also traffic in Islamophobia and xenophobia. And those movements are also seeking to dissolve academic freedom and free speech. So we cannot pretend to be neutral or objective observers anymore. Whether we want to admit it or not, higher ed has historically been the terrain upon which ideas about racial inferiority have been seeded and have been cultivated. And higher ed has also been the terrain upon which many of those ideas were soundly rejected. I think we have to vigorously defend that terrain and be on the offensive from where we stand. I do know I am aware that some of my colleagues believe that the academy has little to offer social movements. Um, I just couldn't disagree more, though. Members of the academy, particularly students, have been at the forefront of many of our most important social movements of the past 60 years. 
And I'm not surprised at the cynicism toward our role today, given how much of the responsibility we previously took on that we now reject in general. But we have the ability to change that. But it does require urgency and it requires a willingness to take on risks that come with speaking up and speaking out. To be clear, some of us are better positioned to bear those risks than others. I have tenure. I am white. I am a man. And those of us who are better positioned to take on those risks, I think have the greatest responsibility in this moment that we are in. That doesn't mean that we need to be out in front of everything. We certainly, though, need to be on the front line. I wonder what you think about academic leadership in this respect, presidents and provosts and state-level boards of higher education and and higher learning. It's my observation that many of those groups share this kind of risk aversion that you spoke about in terms of on the individual level for certain academics. And I think it's true that many of us in academia are risk averse. I mean, even those with tenure and more academic protections than the major than the faculty majority, which don't have those protections. Do you have thoughts about the role of presidents, provosts, other high-level administrators in proactively defending both academic freedom, but also the reason why we have academic freedom is not just because it's great to be able to teach and do research in things that you're interested in, but also the idea is that that freedom is the basis for sound decision-making in a multiracial, multi-ethnic, pluralistic, egalitarian democracy. I mean, my thoughts on the vast majority of higher ed administrators is that they simply are not meeting the moment. I saw recently that several universities have decided, particularly in the wake of the last week or so of conflict in in Israel and now in Gaza, that they're going to remain neutral. That's that's the position that higher ed administrators are taking, is that they're just going to remain neutral. No statements whatsoever. I think that's pretty cowardly. I embrace the idea that higher ed and particularly a liberal arts education helps to build citizen scholars. That is not a partisan endeavor, but it is a political one that we cannot think that that is not a political project. It absolutely is a political project. It's about crafting a kind of a shared ethic and a shared responsibility to each other and an agreement that there is a social contract that we will uphold. That's a political project. It's not partisan, but it's political. For them to claim neutrality in the face of murder and bombings and the committing of international war crimes is to give up the kind of moral authority that our institutions ought to be able to maintain in this moment and really need to maintain in this moment. Because what other institutions are going to step up in that vacuum? I can't imagine they'll be very good ones. So that's my view of higher ed administrators and where I I just, I really see a a lack of, of moral leadership right now. And it may be that they're incapable of it, right? And not as individuals, but I, I'm trying to think about this sociologically, right? Structurally, and I work in public higher ed, so I can speak to that context. Public higher ed is less public than it once was and more dependent upon private dollars and tuition dollars. And that does then shape how people move and act in these roles when the guarantee of public money to support a public good is no longer there, then it's not surprising that many of them reject the idea that they they not only provide a public good, but they have a have a service to the public good, right? It's not surprising to me that they reject that now. So maybe as the public buy-in in terms of actual support for public higher education declines and the increasing the private interests increase, 
you know, there's less of a incentive to argue for the principles of public goods, including democratic citizenship and international human rights law and other other kinds of social practices that result in people, you know, remaining alive and not being subject to bombing campaigns and mass evacuation. That's right. That's right. Well, I don't know when this will come out, but for those who, if this is in the far future, what we're discussing is the conflict between folks who are in control or political control of the of the Gaza Strip versus the government of Israel and the the way that Israel has responded to the events of a couple of weeks ago uh, where um, some insurgents made attacks into southern into southern Israel. I think that's probably the a general description of what happened. And obviously, it's October 16th, 2023. We don't know what the outcome of this is going to be, although we do know that millions of Gazans are on the move. Uh, many have been killed, and we don't know if those folks who have been forced from their from their homes in a very densely packed part of the world are going to be able to make their way back. That's right. All right, JT, thanks so much for sharing about your book. Uh, I'm really appreciative of your time. And the book is a really thought-provoking intellectual journey with Du Bois at this pivotal time in his intellectual formation. I did want to pivot, though, and ask you in the midst of all your book talks and other events that are, are coming up, have you found time for television, JT? Give us a recommendation if you have one, because I just finished after many years of not watching it at all, Succession. And so I, I'm in need of my next long form or you know series. So tell me what I should be watching and maybe what our other, uh, our listeners should be watching. Yeah, so I actually just started the first episode yesterday of this new series on Netflix, The Fall of the House of Usher, which I think if you liked Succession, you'll probably like this show too, because like Succession, it doesn't seem like there are any redeemable characters it's about an obscenely wealthy and also obscenely awful family and the conflicts within the family. And what I like about it is I'm a huge horror genre fan. And this has a lot of so far elements of really good horror that's built into the show. It also has a ton of references to and symbolism from Edgar Allan Poe. So I think if you're also an Edgar Allan Poe fan, you might find the, the series interesting to say the least. Now, I'm only one episode in. It, you know, it could take a turn and be really bad from here. But right now, first episode, I would recommend streaming. Okay, awesome. Well, I am not a horror fan, but we'll see. I'll try it. I'll try it for you, JT. We'll we'll see how it goes. And um, thanks. Yeah, I do like shows with horrible people. Maybe it makes me feel better about myself in comparison. So JT, this book came out very recently. I know that you've done some some talks on it, one at Square Books, which I did see on YouTube. So folks, if you're interested in hearing JT talk about his book in a different venue, different kind of audience, but still very engaged one, I recommend the Square Books channel on, on YouTube. Are there any other events, JT, that are coming up that maybe will hit YouTube or other platforms that folks can check out if they want? want to know more about the book before they dive in. Yeah, I'm really excited. I have an upcoming book conversation on Wednesday, November 8th with Jose Itzigon, who I mentioned earlier. He is, along with Carita Brown, co-author of this book called The Sociology of W.E.B. Du Bois, Racialized Modernity and the Global Color Line, is being hosted by the Gwinnett County Public Library in Gwinnett County, Georgia. I'm really thrilled to be able to do it through a public library. I take seriously that responsibility as a scholar to 
engage with public audiences and what better way to do that than through public libraries, which I think are some of our most important public goods that we have in the nation. And I'm super, super excited to be in conversation with Jose. Um, he's a brilliant Du Boisian scholar and a lot of the work that he's done really inspired some of the work that that, that I do in this book. So I, I think it'll be a very good event. It'll be a virtual conversation so folks can access it. They can register at the Gwinnett County Public Library's website and, you know, can kind of zoom in from, from anywhere to hear it. And if this should post after that event, which is Wednesday, November 8th, you can also find, you should be able to find, I'm not going to promise for the Gwinnett County Public Library system, but other author talks are available on the Gwinnett County Public Library's YouTube channel, which you can just search and search and find that. Well, JT, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate you uh, being with us, joining us here on the Annex. And thanks for writing another very engaging and just thought-provoking book in a variety of ways. Yeah. Thanks so much, Dan. I appreciate you. You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. The Annex is a production of the Queens Podcast Lab at the City University of New York. I want to thank J.T. Thomas, our guest today, an associate professor of sociology at the University of Mississippi. I want to also thank our producer, Christian Erskine, and Joe Cohen, who directs the podcast lab. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time.